Here we go. Rejecting this screen on this Thursday. It's the going ISO edition, which means the long form interview. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, Adam Stenko out West. And today's guest, one of the most respected voices in the NBA, longtime journalist. He's Howard Beck of Bleacher Report, the Full 48 podcast. Howard, going back to the LA Daily News, your first Lakers beat, your first NBA beat in 1997. What was your welcome to the NBA moment? Oh, it's tough because, one, I'm getting up there in years and I don't remember things. Um, so there's that. But two, I don't know if there was like any one moment. The thing that always sticks out to me, if I think about like what struck me when I got the job and waded into this world that I hadn't really been in much, if at all, frankly, um, was shaking Shaq's hand for the first time, meeting Shaq. And this is a universal uh, kind of experience for anybody who's covered the league or covered Shaq at any time where you, you walk up, hi, I'm, I'm Howard Beck, Los Angeles Daily News will be covering you. Nice to meet you. And, th- and the next thing you know, your hand just disappears. And that's when it's really, you, it really strikes you the enormity, literally and figuratively, of this person you're standing in front of and who you're now going to be writing about and possibly zinging on occasion. And it, it just, it, it's just, it's, I don't think you fully appreciate how big a seven foot, 300 and something pound dude is until you meet him for the first time and your hand disappears. So there was that. The other other one, so that's like 97 when I start covering the team. But the other one that leaps out, um, and in in an almost literal sense in this story, um, is probably my second year, I think, covering the league. Could have been third, might have been third year. So it's not really welcome anymore. I've already been around. But there's nothing like having Steve Francis jump over the, the press row while chasing a loose ball and hitting you square in the shoulders and knocking you on your, your back and having your head hit the, uh, the pavement or whatever was under me um, at, at Staples Center in year one. Steve Francis's rookie year, chasing a loose ball. People remember the play, if they remember it at all, for Steve Francis accidentally kicking a Laker girl in the, <laughs> in the ear because it's, it's, that's where they sit. They sit on the baseline. So he's diving over, chasing this loose ball, and his foot catches a Laker girl. And so uh, nobody remembers the fact that as he flew over the table, uh, nobody cares about the, the, the beat writer who got absolutely just hammered. And uh, he came back onto the court, checked on the Laker girl, made sure she was okay, and that was the end of that. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm like, you know, got like cartoon stars dancing around my head for the Jeez. next 10 minutes. How long did it take – Shaq to know your name and call you by name? <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a really good question, too. These are the times when you think, I really wish I'd taken like a diary or journal of some sort back in the early days because so much stuff happened. Like the experiences that you have personally and professionally, you know, the stories that you write, the stories that you don't write, but just things that happen, things you see, funny things, like stuff between beat writers. And it's stuff like little details like that. I I don't have recall for. Um, I I don't think he called me by name. I'll I'll tell you this. I I know for sure. Like Rick Fox, um, Derek Fisher, you know the, the role players. Der, you know Derek Harper, who was my second year on the lead, on the beat, uh, the lockout year, the first lockout year. Um, I know. I remember exactly who knew my name quickly and used it. Because those are the ones where you you feel like, all right, hey, this person's acknowledging my humanity and my my existence, and um, they're being they're being nice to me because you never know on a day to day basis if if guys will or won't. And it's not that Shaq wasn't nice; he often was, but um, Shaq had a, did have that kind of a, you know more detachment, and I think that's that just naturally happens with superstars, right? At some point, mm-hmm. he did learn my name, and at some point, he would call me by name. Although a lot of times, he just called people bro, bro, bro. What's going on with? Miami Heat, what's going on with them? Tell me what you, you know. Like, he wanted, he wanted to hear gossip and stuff. And everybody was mm. bro. Um, Kobe, Kobe called me by name very early on. And I do remember that. So, Howard, in terms of the relationship with Shaq and what you got a chance to see behind the scenes, you know, obviously it's been well documented how Kobe has, has talked about his work ethic compared to Shaq's work ethic at the time. How much of that, I don't know, lack of fire almost that, that Kobe talks about. Did you get a chance to see? It was evident. I mean, I've said this for years and it's, it's been kind of uh, validating in a way to see 
in recent years as these guys have discussed it more in various settings, including with each other when they interviewed each other on NBA TV. And Kobe said what I have been saying for years, and it was good to, to finally hear it from, from him, that the biggest problem between them, to me, fundamentally, was not all the obvious stuff that people always talked about. Alpha dog this, alpha dog that, and who's getting more touches, who's the offense designed around, who's getting the shots, all this stuff that was about power struggle for the team. It's not that those things are invalid, and it's not that they weren't true. It's just that, to me, I thought the biggest problem between them was the fact that Kobe was obsessive about the game and had the highest work ethic of, and I, this is not just a basketball, of anybody I think I've met in any walk of life, period. And Shaq did not have that. Shaq was built differently. And, and Shaq was so uh, just physically dominant and skilled and such a badass that he didn't need to necessarily work in the same way that, that Kobe thought he needed to. But Kobe knew that. And so Kobe had a harder time respecting and deferring to Shaq. And so while Shaq was the logical first option in, in an era where having a big bruising big man to, who, who could not be guarded by one person was the obvious first option. Kobe's feeling was, yeah, but I've got all these incredible skills and I work on them constantly and I'm constantly adding to my game. And so if you, you take that part of it and then you add on the, uh, you know, the, there, there is some power struggle and there is some personality differences and all kinds of other stuff. And yeah, then that, that's where you get a feud that lasts for, you know, the better part of eight years together. But yeah, um, the, the difference in mindset and approach to the game was very much an undercurrent the entire time. And it really didn't burst into public view until that 0304 season where, you know, Shaq and Kobe are fighting again. And Kobe ends up issuing that statement through Jim Gray, where he calls out Shaq for like six straight paragraphs, including calling him out on his work ethic and delaying toe surgery the one year, all the stuff that people in the organization as a whole had been mad about or, or irritated about for a long time. And Kobe, up until that time, had never fired back publicly at Shaq. It was always Shaq taking shots at Kobe. It was never Kobe really firing at Shaq or having people, like, whisper stuff about him. Like, a lot of stuff came from Shaq in his camp in those early years, and Kobe just kind of took it. And that was the one day where Kobe really just, like, unloaded everything. Where were you when that came out? Oh, I think I was at home in Hermosa Beach in my apartment. Um, sitting at my desk and because I remember I, like I can I can picture being at my desk reading that statement scrolling it uh online on you know some like uh early version of I don't even know I don't even know what site it would have come on maybe it was an email I, I don't even I don't remember <laughs> I don't remember how it was conveyed it, it, it could have been you know etched on a tablet and dropped on my porch <laughs> or something but um but but I just remember reading it and my, my first thought thinking holy shit Kobe finally snapped. Like he finally got pushed to the point where he's just going to fire back at Shaq and list everything, all the stuff that we knew probably had been bothering him the whole time. And as again, it certainly had been bothering people in the organization too about Shaq. And, and then my first thought was, huh, Jim Gray is saying this. He like, he went on TV, I think saying it, because this is the way I remembered. I remember reading it, but, I, but he, he went on TV and said it. So and now I'm thinking about it. Like, did he go on did he go on the night before? And then I'm looking at the written version the next day when I'm, when I'm writing about it again. I, I don't, it's hard to remember. I do remember reading it though. And thinking this is a lot of paragraphs of Kobe talking about Shaq in a way I hadn't seen before. Um, but then thinking did it's not on camera. Like Jim Gray is saying, Kobe Bryant told me this, but Jim Gray's a TV person. So usually that means there's an interview, there's audio, there's video, there's something. And so uh, I, I, I remember thinking like, did Kobe type this up and hand it to him? Is this, why aren't we, why are we not seeing and hearing him? I, I don't know why I fixated on that, but I did. <laughs> As reporters, Howard, were you specifically trying to get Kobe at some point to snap to you about Shaq? No, not really. I mean, you know, this was, you know, I always talk, what I, when, I, when I talk about the Shaq and Kobe thing, it's, it's I always say it, it wasn't a linear thing, right? It's not like, you know, day one, they're fine. Day two, things are a little tense. Day three, things get worse. And then eventually somebody snaps. It was this 
this uh, accordion kind of effect where it was like they're fine and they're not fine. And then they win a championship and they're jumping into each other's arms. And then all of a sudden the next year things start to erode again. And so it was all over the map. So it wasn't like there was a, Hey, you've been taking this for a long time. When are you going to fire back? Um, and I wouldn't really, that's not really the way, kind of thing I would ask somebody anyway. It was more of anytime Shaq did take a swipe and they're always kind of coded you know, he had these ways of, you know, these, these kind of quotes where it would be like, you know, uh, I've never been a shooter before, but I just know that, you know, if your shot's not falling, you got to take it to the rack, you know, or, you know, some guys were taking ill-advised <laughs> shots or, you know, you know, there's stuff like that. It would be some guys, some guys, well, who else would it have been? <laughs> I mean, right. I think some of those, my first year, I think a couple of those shots were actually at Eddie Jones. Um, but eventually the, every time he said that it was really about Kobe. And, you know, um, you know, I, 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 I it, it, when they, when it came up and when it was clear, then it would be, Hey, Kobe, you know, <laughs> like typical tattletale type stuff. Hey, Kobe, Shaq said this, any response, but Kobe never did. Like Kobe never really engaged in that stuff. Like I, I, I think you'd have a really hard time finding a, um, any record of, of Kobe taking shots at Shaq other than the one we're talking about where he gave this big statement to Jim Gray. In terms of things you saw in the locker room or at practice or what have you, this is all during a period. I mean, you were with the Daily News from 97 to 2004, if I'm not mistaken. So during that stretch, this is pre-Twitter. And I'm always curious about the moments in one of the most highly publicized relationships of all time. There's still tabloid fodder, but there's not the stuff that spreads like wildfire like it does now on Twitter. I'm just curious about moments that you might recall that would have just blown up on Twitter had someone captured them with some quick video or maybe just a quick tweet that didn't catch fire that that you look back on now and go, man, if that happened today, would have been just bananas. Uh, all of them. <laughs> uh, you know, so much of this stuff was, you know, you know, Shaq saying something in a one-on-one with Mike Wise when Mike when when Wise was at the New York Times, um, or you know, Kobe maybe saying something to Rick Buecher when Buecher was at ESPN Magazine, or like they had their guys, right? This was one of the funny things. I'm a beat writer. I'm covering this team every single day of the week uh, myself, and you know, Tim Brown from the LA Times, Brad Turner, Kevin Ding, like that was the group toward you know for the last few years there. And, you know, we're covering them every day and there are things that we get as a group and sometimes one-on-one, but you always knew that when Kobe had something he wanted to, to really get off his chest, he was often going to go to Buker or maybe Jim Gray. Shaq had Mike Wise. Bill Jackson had Sam Smith at, at the Chicago Tribune. So you're always kind of waiting for like that shoe to drop where it's like, ah, he gave, one of them gave an exclusive. Here we go. Now we got to go clean up the mess and react and, and, you know, we've got a three-day story on our hands as everybody kind of reacts to it. And that's the thing. In a pre-Twitter world, these things last, you know, multiple days. Not that they don't today. I mean, now you've got, you know, like 24-7 debate shows that, you know, never stop and that beat the hell out of every issue that comes up, no matter how small. But back then, it would be a three-day story because the only way to get the back and forth, Kobe said this. Shaq responded the next day with this. Bill said this the next day. Carl Malone weighed in. It it takes a while to develop because they're all it's a 24 it's a it's a, a 24 hour news cycle meaning 24 hours before you get the next news dump you know it's not happening in real time the mm-hmm. way it does now on twitter it you have to wait for the paper to come out the next day and then react again so um it it has changed a lot but i like anything something that would have blown up on twitter like boy um i think even the stuff that Shaq said the coded stuff because people would, one of the things you, you when you come up the, the, the old fashioned way, the, the, the newspaper route, and you, you're a reporter, you're trying not to inject too much interpretation into things. That's the way newspapers work. So if Shaq said, you know, one of these offhand remarks where he's not pointing a finger at anybody in particular, but saying some guys are taking ill by shots, you have to be careful about divining too much from that. You, the, the responsible thing to do is to say, you know, he did not elaborate. You know, and you could maybe say he was potentially talking about Kobe Bryant, who shot two for 18 that night or something. But you're a little bit more careful about it. In today's media environment, everyone's jumping to conclusions all the time. We always read between the lines. And if you don't, 
there will be 500 other people on Twitter doing it anyway. So I think it would have some of these things would have been amplified and uh, complicated even more by all that noise and by the immediate reaction, because instead of waiting to write that and then having the paper the next morning, it would have been Shaq said this at practice tweet. And then everybody jumping in and 57 different blogs weighing in and people running around and that quote immediately now jumping, uh, being, being posted on PTI or something. And I, I just think it would have made things that much worse. Who knows? They might've broken up sooner because the, the intensity that, that, is, that comes to bear on every controversy now, uh, I think can, can, can make it worse, can, can speed up the process. So uh, who knows? I'm, all I know is I'm very thankful that I covered that era, that team in a time that Twitter did not exist. <laughs> I'd imagine. I'd imagine something that you talked about with Andre Iguodala on the full 48 months ago and something that I've long thought is since we hear from players and you brought up the noise, players oftentimes use they and the media when actually meaning the fan noise on Twitter. How has that impacted, one, your ability to do your job, and two, NBA reporting in general, do you think? It's had an impact, I think. It, it's, it's a really hard thing to um, quantify, of course. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm making a logical leap, but I think, I think it is true. And, and, and I think certainly when I talked to Iguodala about it on the podcast, I think that, that he acknowledged this, that players right now in this environment with Twitter, with Instagram, with all this access that the public has to you as an athlete or as a celebrity, with all the stuff that you can find out there, if you want to go searching, if you want to put a, a, a Google alert on your name, Kevin Durant, <laughs> Kyrie Irving, whoever, you can find out in, in real time um, through various ways of how people are talking about you. And when you do that, you're not just finding what, uh, you know, any given reporter or columnist in a newspaper is saying about you. You're finding what they're saying about you on first take and on, uh, you know, PTI and around the horn and, and a thousand other shows. And you're also finding a bunch of fans yelling a bunch of stuff. And I do think it all just kind of coalesces into one big cloud of, 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 of uh, just, you know, criticism and, uh, and noise and annoyance. And you stop making a distinction between the guys who are walking up to you every day after practice with a credential hanging around their necks versus the guy who comes in every so often because he's an opinion guy, a columnist for, for a local outlet versus the fans on Twitter versus the, 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 the people who are on the debate shows who get paid to do nothing but spout opinions. And their entire job is to come up with sometimes the uh, most outlandish opinion because that's what's going to get people to keep watching them and keep talking about them. It all, it all just, just blurs together. And it's not that players are somehow incapable of just making a distinction between fans, talking heads, reporters, whatever, but it, it, there's just so much of it out there. The media environment is very uh, crowded and complex. And I, I, I don't blame any of them for not wanting to take the time to figure out what's media, you know, officially and what's just, you know, fans spouting off. But I think it, it makes them all more gun shy. It makes them that much more reticent, I think, to be forthcoming or honest about, you know, whether it's professionally, personally. Um, I think it, it does complicate our relationship with the players. I think, you know, it's, it's made it a little bit harder to, to gain trust because there's, there's also too many of us. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of media in their face now. There's a lot more media now than there ever has been. It's, it's amazing to think that back when I was covering Shaq and Kobe from, from 2007 to, or from 1997 to 2004, that there were days where it was just the four of us, the four traveling beat writers. And that was it. Like that, that actually happened. It's, it's incredible. Crazy. One of the greatest teams of all time with three of the biggest figures of all time in Shaq, Kobe, and Phil. And there were days where maybe it was just the three of us hanging out at a practice in Minneapolis on, you know, a mid January day. And it, it's, it, it, there's, that's impossible now, just absolutely impossible now. And, and I think that's to the detriment for everybody. I'm curious on the media side, you talked about the impact, I guess, on, on the players and how they handle things. 
But for you in particular, how much does the current landscape alter and how do you balance basically what you write about, given that, as you mentioned, I mean, certain things you know are going to take off. But then I look at your story with, you know, KD and Kyrie and and the backstory there when you wrote that. Everyone already knew KD and Kyrie were going to play together. You waited a day, basically. Well, didn't wait, but but your reporting came out like the next day and went into sort of more depth. And that was the piece everybody cared about. But I'm curious about how you balance the stuff you know is clickbait or going to catch fire and also just the stuff that you personally find interesting. Well, fortunately, a couple of things. Fortunately, um, I'm not a, a, a beat writer assigned to a team anymore, so I have the luxury of, of picking my spots. Um, and fortunately, I have great editors at Bleacher Report who work with me on a daily and weekly basis to say, like, we're going to pick our spots. Let's, let's decide when to weigh in and when not to. So I don't have to react to every last piece of news or every last controversy. Um, it, it, it's or even every trade. And now, look, the big ones, the big transactions, Katie and Kyrie choosing the Nets over the Knicks, uh, Russell Westbrook being traded to the Rockets, um, you know, landmark events. I'm, I'm probably going to jump in if it's big enough, if I don't have anything else that is, that is pressing. And especially, if, you know, look, sometimes it's, I, I'll tell my editors, listen, I, I, don't have, I don't have a really strong take on this. I don't mean a hot take, but it's a strong take. Like there's some things where it's like my feeling is, Meh. Like, ah, this just doesn't move me. Like, uh, example, recent example, um, Carmelo signs with Portland. Now, it's a big deal because Carmelo is Carmelo and because everybody thought his career might be over and a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of, of you know, uh, hours of talk, radio and, and TV have been spent, spent talking about whether he'd play again and, and <clears throat> excuse me, and why he wasn't. But when he signed with Portland, my feeling was... I don't. I just don't have a strong feeling about this. It's you know they're in desperate straits at the moment. He's certainly in desperate straits to get back in. It makes sense. He'll he might make them a little bit better. I don't. He's not the Carmelo Anthony of old. Um, it just wasn't something that I felt strongly about. I, I I'm glad he's back. Like everybody else, I'm glad he's back. He's a good guy. You don't want his career to to end kind of the way it did. It's it's good for him. It's so far good for Portland. I just didn't have any strong feelings about it that moved me to write that night. Um, so it, to, to answer the question, I mean, it, I don't have to worry about hot takes because nobody's at pressing me for hot takes. Um, and, you know, I'm always looking to write the more thoughtful, nuanced piece if I can. Um, sometimes I'm reacting on the fly. I, I did with the Fisdale firing last Friday that, you know, though I haven't been an Knicks beat writer in six years, uh, there's, there's still this kind of, uh, Maybe because we're based here in New York, I am, and Bleacher Report is, or maybe because it's, you know, it it, it, it is an area that I still have a bit of expertise and ties to, um, and everything the Knicks do, good, bad, or otherwise, seems a little bit bigger. But so, yeah, when those things happen, they're going to come calling, and I'm happy to jump in. And that one I I did the same night. But sometimes, yeah, like with KD and and, uh, Kyrie, I think I took a day or so. Um, I've done that with a few times where I'll, I'll let I'll let that first wave of everybody else reacting pass while I quietly just make some calls and try to find out something that, that isn't out there and then and give a, a different kind of perspective on it. That That's my hope. Well, one story that you were on top of at the Davis Enterprise when you were there from 1991 to 1995 was the woman who was cited by police for snoring too loudly and her neighbor... <laughs> called the cops. So I assume I so I assume that you weren't waiting a day or two to react to that and you jumped all over that immediately. Oh my God, Noah. Um I'm 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 really worried for you. Like there if you have enough time on your hands that you could have gone that deep into the Beck archive to find that, I just I I, I mean <laughs> I don't know if you're spending enough time with Eden and and uh, like I, I just, no, you're right. You're right, Howard. He there's doesn't. there's just something uh, something a little disturbing. Um, thank you for uh, surfacing this uh, long since buried memory of, uh, of of one of the most bizarre stories I've ever covered. Um, I, I'm going to answer Noah, but I'm first going to ask, ask you, what rabbit hole were you going down that led you there? Because when I typed her name, which I still remembered off the top of my head, and I was surprised as I'm like, oh my god, I know this name, I, like I still know it. It's not even there. It's not even Googleable. How did you find out? Like, how did you find that? Mm. 
All right. If I if I tell you, will you tell us a Shaq Kobe story that's never been told before? <laughs> I don't know if there are any. <laughs> Um, that's a, that would be a fair trade, but I don't know if there are any. I can't. I can't make a guarantee. I'll have to think. Um, but no, I found right, so to the, the, the the truth is the truth. The truth is, I found this. I found a Q and A that you had done like fifteen years ago at, at the Times, uh-huh. and you ref and you referenced that story. Oh my God, that's amazing! It's not online. I can't find it. Um, I probably have the printed version of it in a pile of clips because I still have all my friggin' clips, much to my wife's chagrin, uh, boxes and boxes of newspapers. Uh, it's in there somewhere. So the, the Davis snorer, as, as she came to be known, because <laughs> no, the story was covered by like CNN and the, the New York Times and like everybody was on this. I'm at the Davis Enterprise Circulation 10,000 in Davis, California, where I'd graduated from college. I'm working there, I'm covering City Hall city government, city stuff. And to the, the, the truth is that story was not broken by me. That story was originally broken by Bob Dunning, who is the legendary, legendary columnist for the Davis Enterprise. Every you know, small town newspaper has got like the man about town columnist. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people are just, you know, a lot, a lot of little hokey stuff, little notes about, you know, like, you know, what the Elks Club is doing or whatever. Dunning was a serious reporter and writer and he'd covered sports he'd covered news and he just he was like bob dunning to me like defined davis he was amazing he was a great guy besides and he was more wired into everything happening in town than anybody so the snoring thing came to him first and he wrote a column about it before i even got wind of it and because bob is is a phenomenal writer it was it was also funny as hell and but immediately I was like, oh, my God, I, I, you know, I'm the city hall reporter. I've got I've got to jump on this. This is essentially a city issue. It's their noise ordinance that's being like weaponized by somebody on the wrong side of a, of a thin duplex wall who's saying, well, I shouldn't have to hear this woman snoring on the other side or this person. He probably couldn't know, didn't know if it was a man or a woman. And the next thing you know, he's calling and filing a noise complaint and the police are just doing their due diligence and saying, well, I, I guess it is too noisy. We, we've got our noise meter and it says that he shouldn't, you know, that we shouldn't be hearing this kind of noise at this hour in a residence. So they cited her and, you know, the rest is history. And I think I probably got, you know, five or six really good stories out of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no follow-up. Uh, no follow-up. Um, I, she eventually sued the city oh. <laughs> and and won a, a small judgment of several thousand, I believe. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I, I don't remember much else about the saga. I mean, I remember writing about it. I remember it being amusing and bizarre and then having national media calling me to ask me about that. I don't remember if it was to, to interview me or if they were just asking me, like, you know, for help on recovering the story. But uh David Davis is a funny little town and, and uh, had a lot of, of oddities over the years. And so that was, to, to, you know, that was considered just like one in a long line. It's interesting, though. They, they paid you the big bucks, 16000 a year, right? Uh, was that also in my Q&A? No, I found that on a deep Twitter dive. So we went we went <laughs> looking for the good stuff. Yeah, no, that uh, that that's true. Um, I think it was like sixteen thousand five hundred or something my first year there. Or some 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 ridiculous uh, ridiculously low number. I mean, I think my rent at the time was probably two hundred and thirty dollars. So I, I guess proportionally, it was all right. But um, yeah, I was pretty much living paycheck to paycheck. It's a small town paper. Like back right. in the day, that's kind of how you did it. Um, Howard, can you tell a story about how? Tom Jolly brought you out from from L.A. to New York. Tom Jolly was the sports editor of the New York Times uh, in 2004 who hired me. um, Something that I will always be very, very grateful for. Uh, That came about. It was kind of a a, a, longer saga. It wasn't like I just woke up one day, got a phone call and like, okay, you got the call up to the big leagues, kid. Um, It was. The Times had changed NBA reporters on the Knicks and Nets, and they used to have consistently three reporters, Knicks, Nets, and National NBA. And there had been some turnover 
in that like 2002, 2003 timeframe. And I'd reached out at some point and kind of poked around. Like I loved covering the Lakers, but it was exhausting at times because the Shaq Kobe stuff, the Shaq Kobe, like all of it, it was just, was, it was constant. Um, and, and, and it's not that it was, I don't want to complain. It's, it's more just that after a while you think, well, I've seen this done that, you know, like it, it's the same stories keep recycling. So, you know, what, what else is out there? Um, but I'm a California native who didn't really, wasn't that eager to, to, to leave. And we were living at the, by the beach. I mean, it was in Hermosa beach, literally a block or two from the sand. Um, I could open my windows at night and literally hear the oceans crashing. I didn't need like a wave machine or, or uh, couldn't have had an app because apps didn't <laughs> exist back then. I could hear actual waves. So I wasn't that eager to go. And, you know, people at times had said, hey, you know, there's this opening at this paper or that paper. And they're always in places I didn't want to move. I'm like, ah, I cover the Lakers. I'm like, I was at the LA Daily News, which wasn't paying as low as the Davis Enterprise was, but it, it wasn't the LA Times, right? The LA Times is certainly like the big dog in town. So there was room for me to be moving up to a, a bigger paper somewhere, but I didn't really want to there were just a lot of places I didn't want to live. I, I, I was my, 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 um, I think my sensibility about, about where I wanted to be was, was stronger than the, the impulse to, to get to the next bigger paper or something. Plus I had one of the, the one of the biggest best beats in the country in, in sports period covering the Lakers. So I wasn't, I wasn't all that eager to go. So the times has a couple of turnovers in, or some turnover in staff. Uh, I make an inquiry. I send off some clips and a resume and, you know, Hello, I'm Howard Beck. I cover the Lakers. You know, you know, give me, give me a, give me a shot. Um, and nothing comes of it. And sometime like, you know, six, eight months later, whatever, I think Liz Robbins, who was covering the Knicks at the time or, or had just gone become, maybe she'd just become the national writer. No, she was, no, she was still covering the Knicks. Um, Mike Wise had, was still there and Wise and I had known each other forever. And I saw they were telling me, Hey, you know what? It's going to open again. You should, you should hit up Tom Jolly. So on a Laker road trip in maybe January of 04 that swung through Boston, Tom Jolly came up from New York, met me for lunch at the legal seafoods in Boston. Um, not the, because there's many legal seafoods, of course, but the one by the, the uh, Marriott Long Wharf. Yeah, um, we, uh, we meet for lunch there. I probably had a lobster roll because I always do. Big time. And 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 that was the interview. We uh, that was the first interview. So we talked for like you know hour hour and a half or whatever on on a game day, and I went and then covered Lakers Celtics that night, and just kind of waited. And then it was April of that year. Playoffs are about to start, and I get this call out of the blue. Now a call from the New York Times is really interesting, and I don't know if it's still the case now, but back then, your cell phone or my my little like Nokia brick phone, when the Times called. It wasn't a phone number. It said 1-111-111-1111. And at the times you when I when I started to work at the times it it, it was a, it actually that actually was like a reference point. You'd say, "Oh, the ones are calling." Oh man, oh crap, the ones. Oh man, you know, cuz it meant your editors were like going to be hounding you about something. So, now it's Ukraine. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um I so I don't know what the ones are at that time. Of course, it's just but this this number comes up. I answer it, and it, it's it's uh, it's Tom Jolly saying, "Hey," um, and I think I was on my way to Staples Center that night. I think I, I think I picked this up on on the, the drive in, and he says, uh, "You know, no pressure to do anything right now, but uh, we're really interested in you, and we'd like you to come out for a couple days of interviews. Um, I know the playoffs are about to start. Don't worry about it. You don't have to come out here now. Whenever the Lakers are done." You you come on out and uh, if you're if you're interested in the job we'd we'd love to 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 have a, a longer conversation and what I came to learn of course is that when the Times says we want to fly you out to New York and and put you through two days of interviews you basically already have the job unless they find out you're secretly an axe murderer um, or some editor along the way flags you as as, as being you know a doofus uh, which I, I hid you know all of my doofus qualities fairly well for those two days eventually but. Basically, if they say you're, they're, they're flying you out, they already want you. And so mm-hmm. like, I'm like, oh, my God, I, I'm like, kind of freaking out um, because the Lakers are about to start the playoffs and I can't go out there. And he's like, but don't worry, you know, we're not hiring anybody until we talk to you. 
like that was I was it was clear that I was I was going to be their choice as long as I didn't screw it up. But I had to wait for the Lakers to be done. And that was the year of point four. <laughs> that was the year. Uh, yeah. uh, I believe that was the year of point four. Um, it was definitely the yeah, year yeah, of them being sure, yeah. down. Oh, they were down O two to the Spurs. And uh, in and, and I thought that at that point, I'm home free. There, there's no way they're coming back from O two to the Spurs. And they they won the next four in a row. And um, and it it, it, it was and it, it it as as exciting as the run is, and as, as much as like it's it's fun to cover a team going to the finals and all that. I just wanted it to be over. I like I just I had this thing hanging over me. I was keeping it a secret from everybody. I hadn't told my editors at the LA Daily News. I hadn't told friends. I kept a lid on this because I didn't want anybody to know. What if it didn't happen? You know, what if this somehow? And my wife worked at the same paper at the LA Daily News. And so then it would be like, well, now, you know, how are her editors going to feel if they think that we're about to leave? I just didn't want to chance anything. So um, so it was stressful. It was stressful to kind of have to sit on it and wait, knowing that our entire lives were potentially going to change dramatically. That I was going to be moving to, to 3,000, you know, moving 3,000 miles away to, to New York, to, to, the, to the New York Times of all places. Like that was exciting and nerve wracking and everything else. And so having that hang over me um was was uh was interesting and yes point four was that year i was just making sure um so a lot of crazy stuff happens on that run they do extend all the way to the finals eventually of course the lakers lose the pistons in five games i'm on the phone with tom jolly the next day scheduling my time to go out there and a week later i'm out there and um you know the rest is history what was the vibe like of the Lakers beat writers versus the Knicks beat writers that you were with every day. <laughs> Do we have another three hours? <laughs> um, it's different. I mean, look, the idea that, that LA media or other media markets are soft compared to New York, is kind of bullshit. It's kind of overstated, um, but it is a different vibe. And there's a lot of different things that go into that, I think. But um, we were pretty collegial on the Laker beat. Uh, you know, we didn't always all go out and hang together on the road, but we could. We we all got along well. Guys were we just had very different makeups in terms of like what our kind of you know personalities were and what our agenda was on the road. And so guys all had their own things. And and so, um, but we all got along really well. It was pretty collegial. Uh, the Knicks beat, as you guys know, not always so much. Um, and you know, there were, there were more bodies and, you know, there was, I think there were seven traveling beat writers when I first got to New York, as opposed to four in LA. And so that's part of it. It's just unwieldy. It's too many people jockeying for position and stories. The garden, as we know, is a very political operation period. It's, it's a, it's just, it's, it's a different environment. And I think the, you know, I've, I've referred to the garden as having a very toxic environment. And I think it is, I think it's a very oppressive environment for the people, a lot of the people who work there. And I think that all the things that make the garden kind of a screwed up place, I think bleed into the beat because when you're in that environment that much, that often, and also the Knicks trying to play people off each other at times, it contributes to all the, those tensions. And so, yeah, there were tensions. Um, no, it wasn't as, as friendly at times uh, as, as I was used to in L.A. And I think uh, it was something I did have to adjust to. But, um, yeah, just a, just a different environment. I just, and we competed against each other in L.A., but just the way that, that like, the tabloids, the Post and the Daily News compete each other against, uh, against each other in New York is at a whole other level because it's like blood sport. It, it's, it's, they're really out to get each other. They're really out to not just beat each other on stories, but to just beat each other up. And maybe that's waned a little bit as, as you know, the, um, the economy has, has hurt papers, including both of those. But I think the tabloid um, kind of the, the, the uh, personality of tabloid newspapers creates a different dynamic here in this market. You know, as I was doing some background on you, uh, Howard, I was told to ask you about your story on the banana boat crew that was nearly the breaking point for the 2015-2016 Cavs when it was published. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, 
So the story wasn't really about the banana boat crew so much as it was Carmelo and, and LeBron specifically. And, and, you know, of course they, they're two fourths of that crew. Um, that story was, mo- which was titled brotherhood um, was mostly about the, it, it, it sprung from an idea I had about what it's like for Carmelo and LeBron to be both friends and rivals. And <clears throat> even though at the time I wrote it a few, few years ago, whatever it was four years ago, at that time, LeBron has already clearly established as far and away the, the more successful player. Um, if you go back to 2003, when they were first drafted, first and third, they were very much rivals coming into, mm-hmm. into the league and viewed as, 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 as basically equals. And there were even people who thought that Carmelo was the better player or would have the better career. And so to be both friends and rivals, I thought, wow, like that's, that's a really fascinating dynamic. I wonder what they would tell me about it. And so you know, I've talked about this story before. It was it was a, just a lot of fun to do and uh, so grateful to both of those guys for spending the time that they did with me to uh, to tell that story. But I, I interviewed LeBron. I, I was told by people, look, you got to get Carmelo first. If you get Carmelo, Le, you know, LeBron, there's no way LeBron will say no. And besides, Carmelo's in my backyard, so it was, it was going to be easier to get him anyway. Um, and so I did. But by the time I get LeBron, it's like late January, I think, of that year. And the Cavs are doing whatever they're doing at the time. They were having one of their one of their going through one of their periods of, of uh, some, I think, distress. But I sat on the interview because I had other interviews still to do. So while LeBron said some things, including so th- what you're alluding to is is the idea that so or the, the the one quote that made all the headlines. So Le, LeBron at the end, the, literally the last thing he said to me before the interview ended was that maybe one day we'll all play together, meaning him and and Carmelo and Wade and Paul, uh, which is you know the 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 so-called banana boat crew. We'll all play together because the Cavs were going through some stuff at that time. By the time my story publishes in I don't know late February, something like that. I'd have to look up the date it hits just at the time when there's a lot of tension with the Cavs. And so it's taken as LeBron taking shots at his teammates or at the organization or whatever, get me some new guys kind of thing. And I don't think he meant it that way at all. I don't think LeBron intended it that way. And on the day that we talked, I don't think there was any public tension going on. <laughs> it, it's just that it took weeks after that interview for me to then gather everything else I needed. I wasn't going to publish that quote ahead of time, obviously, um, and I didn't even leave with that. That quote was very late in my story. I wasn't trying to to play it up, but by the time I finish reporting, transcribing, writing, and now it publishes at a time when the when things are very delicate with the Cavs and their their internal dynamics, and it and it did kind of throw like a little bit of a grenade into the situation. And I, I felt bad about it because. I, like I say, I, the timing of LeBron's quote was at a time when things were relatively peaceful. Right. When he to, when he actually said it to me, but when I actually printed it, because that's when the story was ready. Now it's it's adding you know another spark to that, and then I obviously didn't intend that. That's not what the story was about. Um, but it got it got interpreted that way. It was taken that way. People didn't ask like when did you interview him. They just know that that's when the the, the quote surfaced. So. Um, yeah, that was, that was an an unfortunate, um, byproduct of that story. But I think by and large people understood that it was a, it was a much bigger story than that one quote. All right. A few quick hits to close this out with Howard Beck of Bleacher Report. Who's your white whale guest for the full 48? Oh man. I mean, there's probably several, obviously Michael Jordan, obviously Mike, like everybody Every reporter who covers this league would love to have the sit down with Michael Jordan, whether it's for print or on air or on a podcast. Uh, he just doesn't do media almost ever. And there's a couple of people he might talk to occasionally, but even the people in the media he's friendly with or friends with, he doesn't grant interviews to. Michael just doesn't do interviews. Uh, that's, that's his wave. So yeah, that's the ultimate white whale just clearly within the N- NBA bounds. And then if I'm going to, broaden it just a little bit we'll still stay within nba bounds bill russell would be awesome for all the obvious reasons um but then expanding it just slightly um barack obama i mean Mm. huge basketball fan follows the nba really closely um and he'd be a great conversation on multiple levels 
and I just have great admiration for the man. And, you know, I would, I would just be great to sit down and, and shoot the shit. Um, NBA politics, all of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're talking the, the, you know, dream, the impossible dream. All right. That's, that's a, that's a pretty good list to start with. Would your first question to Barack Obama be, remember that time you wore a tan suit? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it would, I think, I think it would be, do you remember that time I was like three people behind you in the TSA line at LaGuardia in the old B terminal? Uh, and you were still just running, you were in the primaries and it was like January oh, wow. and you weren't favorite yet. Um, I did, it's the, it's the only slight brush with, with Obama that I, I had. And it was funny because he, he's, you know, he, he's just candidate Obama at that time and Hillary Clinton is still the front runner. And he was going through security like anybody else. I mean, he was obviously, he was Senator Obama, but he, he was going through the, the security line like anybody else. He had a couple security people with him, but he was, you know, emptying his pockets and putting things in trays and all the TSA people were all kind of a flutter. And I saw some of them actually run over to like the, the nearest Hudson bookstore to grab his book and buy it to come have him autograph it. Which oh, wow. Did. And I was flying to Chicago that day for Nick's Bulls. And he was on that same flight. And uh, from what I heard from flight attendants, he was up and around and talking to everybody the whole time, just like very, very friendly, very approachable. Um, but I had, I was a few behind him in the line. And, and like, even though the TSA people had noticed him, there wasn't like some big crowd gathering around. This was not, it was still pretty low key. Cause again, he wasn't as, he wasn't a rock star yet. Right, and I, I could have and should have, found a way to make an excuse to at least say hello. Uh, I did not. Oh, well. Yeah, and what a time. People actually accepted his identification, too, I'm sure, when he uh, got on the plane. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good Howard, uh, your, your best Kobe is a pathological competitor example that you witnessed firsthand. Huh. I mean, he was kind of the proverbial first guy in, last guy to leave the gym. I, there was a time, there, one of the times that, that he and I had kind of gotten our wires crossed with, with something I had written, I wanted to wait him out after practice one day. And you used to be able to do this. It wasn't, a, you know, teams weren't so overmanaged where it was just like, media time is over, everybody leave. I could, I could wait. And PR would basically just say, you want to spend all your time here? Fine, we're, we're, we're going and having lunch. And I, I, I waited him out one day. Um, and he just kept shooting and shooting. Now, maybe that was just to piss me off or, or to, to make, see if I would just give up and leave. <laughs> um, but I waited a long time. And then we had a, a very tense talk. And uh, it, it was still many weeks after that before he thawed. Um, but that's more of a uh, that's that's not exactly the right story, I guess. But it is. I mean, it, 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 the dude worked his, his tail off. I think when we talk about you know Kobe or anybody else being pathological, unless they're doing the. And Kobe did this once too. I think we were in Miami where he did one of those, you know, you, you, you're, you're back in the press room and somebody pops their head and says, Hey guys, I don't know if you're aware of this. Kobe's back out on the court shooting and it's, you know, midnight and you're on deadline and whatever. Now you got to wander out and go look and see. I think that, I think that did happen in, once when we were in Miami, but most of what guys do when they are obsessive about the game is, is so far removed from anything that we're going to witness, right? It's, it's what they're doing in the off season. It's what they're doing. Sometimes it's five in the morning. Cause you know, if you're Kobe, you never actually sleep. Um, but it's not, it's not stuff that we're going to witness firsthand for the most part. That's, that's an absolutely great point. I, um, final one for me, my favorite, uh, thing about Mikhail Prokhorov was in 2010 when he said that if the Nets don't win a championship in five years, he promised to get married which seemed like the ultimate Mikhail Prokhorov moment. Um, what about something that you have that, that covering Mikhail Prokhorov was just different from covering other owners? If only Mikhail Prokhorov turned out to be nearly as compelling or effective or fun as he seemed to be during that introduction. Like they did a, <laughs> they did a masterful job. He had this PR woman, uh, Ellen Pinchuk, who um, I think, if I had to guess, I think fed him a lot of the lines. Like he, like he met with us. That he met with a bunch of the New York writers over breakfast, and he he, he said something like, you know, I come in peace, you know, in, in his in his Russian accent. Like he was playing a lot off of like Cold War jokes and like Bond film 
villain type, you know, persona, kind of cheeky. And like, he was, he was so, we, 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 you know, he was dubbed, I think, by that, that one of the, by one of the Nets blogs back then is like the, you know, the world's most interesting man, right? Like after the Dos Equis guy. And that's what he was. Like he was really, he was funny. He was glib. He was, you know, he had all these proclamations. He says, we're going to take over New York. It was fun to watch him like basically just swagger in and say, I'm going to, I'm going to turn Knicks fans into Nets fans and basically screw Dolan. And I'm going to put up a billboard across from the garden with my face and, 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 uh, and change these faces on it. Like <laughs> that stuff was all really kind of fun and fun to write about. And he was fun to cover for a moment, but the actuality was, he was almost never here in New York. Um, yeah, you know, obviously, like really uh, massive business operation and, and, and empire to, to manage in Russia. But he wasn't here much. He didn't talk to us much. He wasn't that approachable. Um, and ultimately, his, um, his his unbridled ambitions of wanting to to win and win fast and take over New York backfired spectacularly i know people want to put it all on on billy king and his staff but all of that was was coming from the top where as these things often do or almost always do where Prokhorov set the parameters i want to win now i want stars now so they go rush out and, and give up a bunch of stuff to get darren williams and then they give up and give up a bunch of stuff to get joe johnson so that darren williams feels like he's got somebody else uh, of his caliber to play alongside. And they just, there was a, just a whole cascade of decisions that stemmed from this idea that we have to have stars on the day that we arrive in Brooklyn. And it, it backfired, mo- obviously most infamously with the, the Pierce Garnett deal and, and all that they gave up in that. And that's not to say that, you know, Billy King didn't make his mistakes, certainly did, but everything starts from the top when the owner is saying, I want to win immediately. I want stars immediately. I want to take over New York. And, you know, it, it's uh, any, you know, he kind of, he kind of flamed out, you know, we, we didn't, you know, he wasn't, like I say, not nearly as, as fun or as interesting and certainly not as effective as you would have thought he might've been. And, you know, now he's out of the picture entirely and, and it's Joe Sai who's running the nets. And it's pretty wild. As we record this on a Wednesday, just yesterday, Darren Williams was trending on Twitter and I know he didn't die, but then I clicked on it and I saw that it was like best NBA hairlines. And then I just X'd out of Twitter. I said, this is enough, <laughs> no, enough in this oh, nonsense. Man. Before we close Twitter, it out with, wait, with Twitter, yeah, Twitter has run out of content. Oh my God. Twitter yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. About eight years ago it did. <laughs> yeah. Before we close it out with our going ISO question, a question that we asked the two of us that we asked a bunch of the rookies a few years ago, I'll ask you, what's the worst career advice you ever got? <laughs> I love when you ask that question to players. See, the, ones like this are tough because I'm, I'm, there's, there has to be something and mm-hmm. nothing leaps right to my head. And, and then I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, sadly disappointing you and your audience. But, Come on, some, Mike, um, Mike Wise never gave you bad advice. I find that hard to believe back in the, the Sacramento <laughs> Union in the late 80s. <laughs> uh, wise was amazing back at the back of the sacramento union in the late 80s he, he was uh the guy was just like such a such a charmer like such like a smooth talker i would listen to him on the phone from across the room because i was like this guy who you know I, I you know believe it or not i was pretty shy um which is not a good quality for a reporter and it's something you kind of have to break out of and um, I, I was still like not great at like cold calling people. It it just it it always I always had to like you know get geared up for it mentally. And Wise would get on the phone, and I hear him calling this like these small time high school football coaches and wherever. He'd be like, "Oh, hey, coach. Hey, hey, Mike Wise. Hey, how you doing, man? Hey, oh man, you got great game last night. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, your wide receiver. You know, he's getting a lot of a lot of D one looks and." Man, you guys did a great job of developing him. Yeah, so tell me, tell me more about him. Yeah, so like I, I listened to him do this, and I'd be like, man, that dude's smooth. <laughs> I gotta be like that, and and like literally, I kind of incorporated a little bit of that. Like I, it, like I don't, you know, I don't talk and sound like Mike Wise. I don't think, but like the the way he was so relaxed and so friendly and not calling he it never sounded like a cold call it sounded like they'd been buddies for 10 years and i realized oh you know what if you approach people that way you're kind of putting them 
instantly at ease. And mm-hmm. um, so there's not the worst advice ever. It wasn't even advice. It was just me like, you know, uh, kind of observing somebody doing the job and, and doing it effectively and thinking, oh, you know what, I, I, I can um, I can pick up on a little bit of this. I can I can use a little bit of this. Yeah, sure. Good story either way. So you close out the Full 48 podcast, which everybody should be downloading, subscribing, rating, and reviewing wherever you get your podcast, the Full 48 podcast with Howard Beck. You always close it out with your guests by asking them, if you're commissioner for the day, what would you change about the NBA? We always close out rejecting the screen podcast, going ISO edition every Thursday with, with anybody that you've ever covered. And let's take Kobe out of the equation here. With anybody that you've ever covered, who would you want to, in a game-winning situation, to have the ball in their hands, reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket? <laughs> Without I know you, this has to be either Lakers or Knicks, right? This is not like teams I've like parachuted in. These are the teams like I covered every day. I have to pick somebody off of. Sure. I mean, I I, got, I, I think I probably should go with recent full forty-eight guest Jamal Crawford. I know he's going to be able to create his own shot and get space. He's masterful at it. I know he's not afraid of the moment. I know he's going to take take that shot. And I know uh, he's hit a lot of clutch shots in his career. So uh, if it's if it if it can't be Kobe, if he's exempt from the uh, the question, then yeah, probably Jamal. I mean, I could see Jamal Crawford going out there with a walker and still rejecting the screen and saying, I don't need it. I don't need it. And he would still, right. And he would, and he would still shake you right out of your shoes, even with your walker. For sure. All right. He's Howard Beck. You can follow him on Twitter at Howard Beck and read all of his work on Bleacher Report. And again, download, rate, review, subscribe to the Full 48 podcast. Howard, we really appreciate it. Thank you. No, that was a lot of fun, guys. Thank you. Yeah, you've been an amazing guest. We appreciate it. And how I've just had on Jamal Crawford, who said that he's ready to play. He's the ultimate gym rat. We're ready to get back out there. And I have no doubt that he can give you buckets. And he had said that the way that he would change the NBA for the day would be to increase rosters. I think it was to increase rosters, not just for the All-Star game, but I think it was increased rosters for team so that they could have more veterans on or at least that was a that was a topic during their conversation about you know just teams having more veterans like jamal crawford or others but that's howard beck and as we said at the top one of the most respective voices in the nba always thoughtful always reasoned something that kind of gets lost in today's media you're absolutely right, Noah. I mean, just one of the good guys. You can just tell his his kindness comes across and uh, so much that we could ask him about. But I just thought he was an incredible guest. We didn't even ask him about what up, Beck, uh, which he's obviously, which which has been referenced so many so many times by him and and others. And uh, you know, what was really interesting to me, he was talking about the the Kobe Shaq dynamic, and I think he articulated it in a way that. You know, as much as those two have talked about, and if you really study that stuff and have really dug deep or or had the chance to interview one of them, you understand that that he really said that that's what it was about. Everyone wants to make it about what happened on the court during games, who was frustrated, who wasn't. But really, it was the little moments. And I know, um, you know, I didn't want to bother Howard with it, but I remember being at ESPN, and I think Magic Johnson had told some of the people that I worked with, I wasn't in the room when he did, but was telling people stories about what he witnessed between Shaq and Kobe. And one of the times I think he said, <clears throat> Shaq was spending all practice just like not dunking on anything. He would just do that. He would have practices where he decided, I'm just not gonna dunk today. And so he'd get the ball underneath, shake his man, get to the hoop, and then just lay it up soft, lay it up soft. And it drove Kobe insane. Just couldn't understand how a guy couldn't take it more seriously. And this was the kind of stuff that they would battle over. And so Kobe flipped out and was like, you need to dunk that effing ball. Dunk the ball, man. What the hell are you doing? So Shaq finally looks at him, goes, okay, catches it, like shakes whoever it was, Chris Mim or whoever was the big man at the time, and dunked the ball so hard that, like, bodies are flying, all this. Like, the rim is about to, you know, he's about to break the backboard. And then Shaq's like, that good enough for you? And then... Like, that was it. And he said, like, that was the stuff they would battle over all the time. It wasn't who was getting, as Howard points out, the touches and games. It was more about how hard Shaq was willing to work and how much the game meant to him as opposed to what it meant to Kobe.
So here's a line from the Jim Gray, Kobe Bryant conversation. This is a transcript mm-hmm. from ESPN that Howard referenced off the top. Jim Gray question. Shaq says they've not been a team player. Is he right? Kobe, that's ridiculous. I've been successfully sacrificing my game for years for Shaq. That's what Phil wanted me to do, so I did it. Last year, Phil told me Shaq was not in physical condition to carry the trust of our offense, so he asked me to do it. But then he saw Shaq was getting upset that the team wasn't running through him, so Phil asked me to pull back, and I did. This year is no different. My role is whatever Phil wants it to be, period. Might as well throw (laughs) Phil under the bus, too. (laughs) Also, Jim Gray, do you consider Shaq to be a leader? Leaders don't beg for a contract extension and negotiate some $30 million plus per year deal in the media when we have two future Hall of Famers playing here pretty much for free. A leader would not demand the ball every time down the floor when you have the three of us, talking about Carl Malone, Gary Payton, and Kobe, playing beside you, not to mention the teammates you've gone to war with for years. And by the way, then threaten not to play defense and rebound if you don't get the ball every time down the floor. And then those two played together. <laughs> what's what's so great is again trying to imagine today that stuff coming out and it's not like that's that long ago we're not talking about the 60s here we're not talking about the 40s this is you know it's just the idea of those two and the battles that they had just trying to picture that today in our twitter sphere what nba twitter would do with that that interview unbelievable well as well as howard said that that would have been the reaction to that would have been so visceral across yes, NBA visceral. Twitter and the media that it likely would have broken that Lakers team up even sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Like Larry Bird calling his teammates sissies, you know, right. or whatever, whatever the term, right? That was it in the uh, playoffs. Um, you know, same thing, like the stuff that you could pull off then. And, and also understanding, I think this is a big point and this will be it for me, but just the idea that you knew you could sort of control the narrative with what you said. So when you did that exclusive interview with Howard Beck and made your comments to him, you could sort of understand where that was going to go and what it was going to do. And you could send a message to your teammates through the media. Now, you don't know. It's, It's sort of like I heard a comic once talk about that once you're a comedian and you make a joke, you can plan that joke and you can word it exactly as you want. But once it's left your mouth, you have no idea how the crowd's going to react or what the response is going to be. It's gone now. It no longer belongs to you. And I sort of feel that's the way that the Twitter, NBA Twitter is now, all the media members are now, how stuff just spreads so quickly. Once you say something, you don't control where that message is going to go or what it's going to do. All right. So again, follow Howard on Twitter at Howard Beck for all the reasoned takes not the typical NBA Twitter stuff and listen to his podcast full 48 speaking of podcasts, just share ours. We'd love you to download, subscribe, rate, review, just share it. We'll just ask, we're just asking you to do one thing so that we can continue doing this on the locked on podcast network. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Naismith lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C O S L O V twice a week on Tuesdays. We'll give you a little bit of life and a lot of hoops. This week, we talked about Adam's toddler son throwing a toy car through the TV. He broke that. Mm-hmm. I built the Barbie dream house. Yeah, no big deal. And then on Thursday, we go ISO. So the long-form interview with any number of folks who have touched the league, played in the league, covered the league. Peter Vesey, Howard Beck, Richard Jefferson, Sam Mitchell, Ryan Rosillo, Doug Gottlieb, a host of others. Adam, thanks, pal. Noah, you are the best, and so is Howard Beck. <laughs>